0: each week they explore the world
1: of writing, publishing and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers and much more. With students enrolling from all
0: over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone
2: and welcome to episode 146 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Uh,
1: well, it has to be said that I am in somewhat a better frame of mind than I have been the last couple of times we've spoken for two reasons. Uh-huh. One is it's not 40 degrees today. Oh, I know. So let's all just take a deep breath and get excited about that. Mm. And secondly, school's back. Woohoo. School is back. <laughs> I know. Oh, and my you know God. what? I'm very sad, and I do miss them desperately. But I Hell am you know. so. Oh, <laughs> like, you really do. We had a lovely holiday. It was just. It's it's nice to have them around. They are quite delightful most of the yes. time when they're not bickering. But um, oh, just the pe just the the silence. I just I miss it so much. I am very much, um, you know, it takes a certain type of person to spend an awful lot of time in their own company, yes. and I am that type of person, and I do like my own company quite a lot. So I really. <laughs> I need the silence to recharge, and i it's quite important to me, so um anyway, I'm back and I'm recharging as we speak.
2: Oh well, well done, well, I think on the subject of school holidays, I am hashtag blessed because um hashtag blessed. <laughs> Okay, you know, they just do. put out those Instagram posts and do. they go, no, oh, wow, you know, flying first class and drinking Dom Perignon and look at the MS handbag. My boyfriend just bought me hashtag blast.
1: Sorry, <laughs> I, I like hashtag so blessed as well. So I'm
2: blessed,
1: hashtag, yes. So blessed, yeah. Well,
2: I'm hashtag blessed because, yeah. um, you know, I have uh, my my neighbours across the road. There's five boys, five, no no four boys.
1: Oh yes, you have spoken of them before. You just added one in there.
2: Yeah, additional.
1: Sorry. Yeah,
2: sounds like five boys, but there are four boys, and I think they range from, I would say seven to thirteen. And uh, they went I don't know like how this happened, but it's fantastic. They went away for the whole holiday.
1: <gasps> Valerie <laughs> Don't you miss their, you know, childish laughter and their <laughs>
2: realist. <laughs> but the whole holidays. and they only came back like the day before school. It was unbelievable. Like Wow Yeah. Wow. Well, um, hashtag So Blessed. Hashtag So Blessed. So it was really, really lovely and peaceful and tranquil and quiet. But anyway. Hmm. And it continues um, to be so. Yes, yes, now that they're back at school. But look, we want to give a shout out to Blair. Blair left us a uh, review on on iTunes and Blair said, Very inspiring and a tremendous help in keeping focused in writing my novel. And Blair says, thank you. Well, we want to thank you, Blair, because we really appreciate the feedback and that you took the time to leave us a review. So thank you, Blair.
1: Thank you very much, Blair, and good luck with the novel.
2: Yes, absolutely. Good luck with the novel. And if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd be really, really grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. Now, we have another shout-out. We have some big news about Australian Writers' Centre presenter Candace. Fox, oh, who we do. have it's massive news, massive news. Da, da, da. You know, we've had her on the podcast a couple of times. First, uh, you know, when her book came out, and then more recently when she gave us a little short snippet uh, of conversation about how she ended up co-writing with the iconic uh, thriller writer James Patterson with mm. the book that they released called Never Never, set in the Australian outback about a sex crimes detective called Harriet. And it's just been announced, hasn't it, Al, that
1: just announced. Go they on. They went to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Oh.
2: My goodness. Like mm. pretty pretty big deal. So
1: that's massive.
2: Yes, absolutely massive. Congratulations to Candace Fox and that was for the book Never Never. Now that just came out in America because that's why it's Gone to number one on the New York Times bestseller list, but uh, she has just released her a book in Australia called Crimson Lake, and I have no doubt that that's going to be a huge success as well. And uh, she, you know, she loves that genre. She loves the crime and thriller genre, and she yep. loves all things crime and thriller. And of yep. course, that's why she created and designed for us the fantastic course um, called Anatomy of a Crime: How to Write About Murder. So that you can actually write about crime, specifically murder, very, very um, authentically and realistically. Mm -hmm. And she takes you through all the steps of a crime, all the way from premeditation to to evidence, to the crime itself, to what the police do. And it's an absolutely fascinating insight into how to write about murder. And if you're interested in checking that out, then have a look at murdercourse.com. Now, shall we talk about the um, other aspects of the world of writing and publishing this week? Let's do that. Well, I came across this post um, from a website called The Mission and Mm -hmm. it's by Elle Kaplan and she wrote a post called How to Become an Insanely Good Writer According to Stephen King. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the first tip I actually... I can't agree with, Al. Oh. Yeah. So right. the, the first tip is stop watching TV. Instead, read as much as possible. Now, I do agree with read as much as possible. Mm. But apparently Stephen King says that television is poisonous to creativity. Hmm. Mm. And you, you must do two things above all others, read a lot and write a lot. Now, I have to say I do agree for sure that you have to read a lot and write a lot, and I do know that if you want to uh make time for that, sometimes you have to give some other things up, and sometimes that's television, but you know I just can't do it myself I, I love well, my little t v sessions
1: well i look i I'm sort of half with Mr. King on this in the sense Ooh. that um I think it depends a great deal on the t v that you're watching. Um, yeah, and I, that's all I'm gonna like. I there's some fa- there is some fantastic storytelling t- in television now. Mm. I think that the last couple of years have just been an absolute golden age of golden age, particularly series TV. Yes. I just think that there's been some incredible stuff. Um, there's also been some utter drivel, and I think that we mm. probably know which end of the scale. Some you know some of the things that Valerie in particular enjoys watching. Let's talk about Housewives.
2: I don't watch I'm Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here.
1: <laughs> no, of course not. And you're not watching Married at First Sight. And No. No, of course not. Um, so I think that there's that. The other thing I also think, and I, I agree with reading as much as possible, but I, I think um, one of the things that I talk about in the Make Time to Write course mm. is the fact that Giving Up TV, <laughs> One mm. Daily Show, for example – can buy you back an awful lot of time to actually yeah. create your own stuff. And I think that that's something else to consider with the watching of TVs. Um, it does creep up on you a little bit. as just to mm. how much television you're actually sitting in front of. So maybe it's worth taking stock of that just from the perspective of making time for your own creativity. So maybe it might be like a double-edged sword there with Mr. King. What do you think?
2: Yeah, it's true. But it's just that if you do get up, give it up, you don't want to feel like you're sacrificing something that –
1: is you know gives you joy no 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 I'm not saying you give up everything I'm just saying that four or five hours a night in front of the telly <laughs> is maybe not the best use of your time that's all I, that's all I'm saying there's no judgment here on any level of <laughs> anything <laughs> I, I don't watch four or five hours a night <laughs> housewives um but let's just um let's let's just say that yeah that there's some some space to be had there if you need it. I would it. just
2: like to be clear that I don't watch all of the Housewives. I only watch the good ones. I don't watch, you know, like Atlanta or Cheshire or I'm not going to watch Sydney.
1: So, okay. And they, and I had no idea that there were good ones, so thanks <laughs> for clarifying that. <laughs>
2: It's, it is my guilty pleasure, but it helps me wind down after I have been working Hello? hard as all think, day. As I said,
1: Valerie, there is no judgment here. It's, you know, we all do what we <laughs> need to do to wind down and to find our headspace. And I think, you know, whatever you need to do is the thing. Like my ways of doing that are probably not everyone's cup of tea either. But there is space there for, uh, you know, there is some, as I said, some inspiring and fantastic TV. And yes. there is also, but there is also space there for perhaps grabbing back some time if you're struggling to find time for your own projects.
2: Yes, yeah. and if you need okay. to make time to write, then make sure you check out Alison's course, which is called exactly that, How to Make Time to Write, and you'll find it mm-hmm. at writerscentre.com.au slash time. Now, mm-hmm. the other thing that Elle Kaplan talks about is that she says, um, you know, in terms of what Stephen King suggests, is that she says you need to be consistent. Now Stephen Mm -hmm. King says, once I start work on a project, I don't stop and I don't slow down unless I absolutely have to. If I don't write every day, the characters begin to stale off in my mind. I begin to lose my hold on the story's plot and pace. Now uh, I think that that is also... um, consistent with something that I have been trying to do lately on my creative and non-creative not so creative projects and that is adopt a spirit of completion meaning Mm -hmm. if you have let's say five projects going at once which often we have to juggle you know five things just because of timing or whatever or we've just you know come up with uh, a bunch of new ideas and we're, we're keen to get to get going with them that's fine to have five projects going at at once particularly if you've got this you know burst of inspiration you need to get started but then if you actually then divide your time between the five you're never going to get one of them finished Mm. you need to this spirit of completion that we've been trying to adopt that I've been trying to adopt has been okay out of all your projects pick two okay pick two Mm. pick um, priority one and priority two and just go hard on priority one so to as much as you can, and sure, you sometimes need a break from priority one because of whatever reason. Just mm. then, go to priority two, but don't go to any of the others. Mm. You know, focus on just getting stuff complete because, as we know, you you need to finish an entire novel <laughs> mm. before you can get it published, right? So there's no point having 114 different stories in no. your drawers everywhere.
1: So I adopt um, – and I, I wrote a blog post about this at the start of the year. I adopt a one-out, one-in um, – what, what's the word I want here? Philosophy on that. Mm-hmm. So if I'm working on – for example, at that stage, I, I was working on the proofread of the fourth book in the Mapmaker Chronicle series, mm-hmm. and I had the copy edit – for the first book in my new series and I was just finishing the first draft of the second book in my new series. So basically what I did was I finished the first draft, then I did the proofread, then I started the copy edit. So it's a process of I'm not trying to do all of these things at the same time. I am mm. working, focusing on one project at a time, one out, one in. And I think yes. that um, that's particularly if you're a freelance writer or you are someone who is working on you know, several manuscripts or something like that, I think that it's really the only way so that you don't get yourself in a total mess.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Mm.
2: Now, Al. Yes. Have you heard of the book, or did you read the book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie I, Kondo?
1: Val, if you'd seen my desk, you would not <laughs> even have to ask me that question. I yeah, have not but, read it. I probably okay. should read it. And in fact, I was, making, I was calling out on Facebook for someone to come and tidy my desk yesterday, oh. saying that it would probably only take them three hours or three decades, perhaps. Um, <laughs> yeah, so no. Okay. I haven't read the book. I should read the book.
2: I have read the book, but you wouldn't know it from looking at my desk. <laughs>
1: okay,
2: right. But I mention that because somebody has written a post on the Grammarly blog called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up Your Writing. Ooh. Now, for those Bye. people, yeah, clever. So for those people who know about Marie Kondo's actual, you know, original book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, she is, which is a New York Times bestseller, she is obsessed with tidying and even as a child she used to just tidy things in her home and there was nothing that she loved more than taking out a cupboard and tidying it and she talks about how you can, you know, you roll your little socks up and put them in the drawer and how you need to declutter and determine um, the things that uh, still give you joy and the things that no longer give you joy and if they give you joy, you hug them, and you say, "Oh, thank you for giving me so much joy, blouse and okay. you can in your cupboard, but if All it right. doesn't give you joy, you should actually chuck it. And of mm. course, that comes from a situation where in Japan there's a lot there's really limited space, so you can't have lots and lots of stuff mm. and uh, so and the stuff that you do have needs to be easily arranged and findable and categorised, and so on. So in this post, the life changing magic of tidying up your writing. It says that uh, there are a bunch of things that that you can do. You can also tidy by categories. So Mm -hmm. you might decide, okay, um, and this is kind of, it's relevant to all different types of writing. It's particularly relevant to um, non-fiction writing, but it can certainly be applied to fiction writing as well. So Mm -hmm. one category might be weasel words, yeah?
1: Oh, you like weasel words?
2: Yeah, you know, words that politicians might say or or stuff like that or cliches, that sort of thing. And so you might go through and just slash them all out with your red pen. And because you can just quickly identify the weasel words, you can even just do a find, you know, control find or command find Mm. or whatever it is for particular weasel words that you know um, that you might have used. But also you can chuck out... Empty words that possibly don't need to be there. My my, my word that I use way too much of that I go through and slash every time is the word that. So oh. sometimes I will do a, a control find for the word that. And sometimes they do have to stay there. And other times I can just get rid of them and the sentence is just better for it. But there are other words, you know, like in order to or currently or actually is one basically mm. i see people use basically a lot yep
1: yes yes yep. I, I um as the writer of children's adventure stories, I use suddenly too often and oh. that's something that always has to go, like when I write my first draft, there'll be suddenlies all over the place and then I, when I go through and do that sort of first edit, the suddenlies all disappear and I think of different ways to actually to to do that. The other mm-hmm. word, the hilarious word that um, that came up in my last manuscript that I had to rethink on many occasions was frowned. My poor character, I mean, they're in in very worrying situations. (laughs) Like it's pretty tough out there for them, but there was so much frowning going on. It was was hilarious. I think I had something like 38 frowns in the manuscript, so there are definitely not that many frowns in there anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, Mm. even just
2: yesterday I showed my partner something and he came back and he said, look at this paragraph, and it was only a paragraph of five lines, and he said, The word sure, as in S-U-R-E, sure, was in there seven times.
1: (laughs) How do you even do that? That's impressive.
2: You need to make sure and then there's a sure fire and then there was...
1: Goodness me, okay.
2: A sure thing. I was was really sure that day when I was writing that. (laughs) So I ditched six of them and I left one. Mm. Uh, But, yeah, sometimes you don't know, but you need to go back and see, are you repetitive? You know, can you tidy your writing? It's an interesting post, and we'll put the uh, post in the show notes, which, of course, you can find at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Now, (laughs) shall we move on to our giveaway?
1: Let's. we love a giveaway.
2: All right. Our giveaway uh, this week and entries close on Monday the 6th of February are two Aussie rural fiction books.
3: Mm. And
2: uh, they're awesome. They're Sapphire Falls by Fleur MacDonald, who we've had on the podcast before, and um, and also Third Time Lucky by Carly Lane. So, you know, um, two. Who we've also had on the yes. podcast. That's hmm. right, who we've also had on the podcast, so two awesome rural fiction books because rural fiction is the thing
1: these mm. days, isn't it? It's big, yeah. It's a very, it's very it's- big genre.
2: If you want to enter, then just go to au slash win and you can hmm. win those books. au slash
4: win. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor, giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing.
2: All right, are we ready for the word of the week, Al? So ready,
1: though. So ready, so ready. I'm actually shifting in my seat as we speak. Para.
2: Now, that's P-A-R-A-P-H, paraff. Do you know what it is? No. Well, it might be something that Donald Trump has been using as he's been signing those executive orders Ooh. because, now, paraff, you might be fooled into thinking it's short for paragraph because it kind of sounds like short for paragraph, paraff, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. actually it refers to a flourish made after or below a signature which oh. mm-hmm. It was originally used to re- prevent a forgery. Like, I remember when I was little, I used to, like, forge Captain Cook's signature for some reason. Um, I don't know Captain where that Cooks. was going to... Yeah, weird, right?
1: right. Um I and... I've forged my mum's signature on my reading card in grade two. Why? Were you lying? I hadn't done my reading. <laughs> oh! <laughs> I was so shocked when they realised it. it wasn't, you know, that it wasn't her, it was me. Really? Mm, I really thought it was a good job.
2: Yeah. Okay. Great too. Well, did she have a paraph?
1: No, she did not have a para. Uh,
2: Captain Cook did. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, para. You, it's 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 give it a go. Have you got mm. a paraph in your signature? Do let us know. We'd like to know. Mm. So let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Oh, who have we got? Awesome. I love Nicole Hayes. Now, Nicole mm. Hayes, apart from uh, teaching creative writing at the Australian Writers Centre in uh, Melbourne, mm. she is she's just one cool chick. Uh, but she's also written a number of books. So, um, the latest book is A Shadow's Breath. And Mm. it's a YA book. It's fantastic. She's also written two other YA books. The first one was One True Thing, set in the Mm. world of AFL. The second one is The Whole of My World, um, which has some, you know, set in a little bit of a political kind of um, uh, scenario. But she's also an obsessed, obsessed, obsessed AFL chick, Mm. you know, as in Aussie rules football, like So Not Me. Um, And she's written books. She's edited a book called From the Outer uh, about um, AFL, but she's also written a footy girl's guide to the stars of 2017. However, the book we're focusing more on and the one that's just come out is A Shadow's Breath. So let's have a chat to
4: Nicole Hayes. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks
3: for having me, Belle
4: oh, you know what, this book, you know how like there are some stories, there are some books that, you know, they're, they're good books and, they're, and that's, that's, that's great and there are some books that are great stories and, but when I f- read them I feel that they're great stories that, that have been written down and there are some books that just unfold in front of your eyes. I don't actually feel like I'm reading because this world just I'm just wandering through this world, you know, that 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 just opens up before me and this is one of those books. Oh, and yeah, <laughs> I just I just think it's wonderful. But for those readers who have not yet read the book yet, listeners as well, can you tell us in your words what this book is about? A Shadow's Breath.
0: I certainly can. A Shadow's Breath is about Tessa Gillum, whose life changes forever after a car accident in mountainous bushland, um, injured her survival in the bush um, with her injured boyfriend. Both of them are struggling to find their way down the mountain. That's their only way of survival. But along the way, they're fighting the elements and also the tension between them. And we also, uh, in the process of this story, dip back into the events leading up to the crash to uncover the reason that Tessa is afraid to go home.
4: Mm-mm. Now there are as you've just said, it's kind of mm. like two timelines in this book. And was that hard to there is the timeline of the, you know, um before the crash but also as you said what happens um from the crash. What how hard was that to balance or juggle or did you just think, you know, what, I'm just going to go from one to the other and 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 see how that works (laughs) and i just magicked
0: it yeah yeah Yeah, that that was (laughs) a (laughs) breeze no actually um there were several points so basically that you've got the now and the then chapters and they Mm -hmm. just alternate every all the way until they converge near the end um at the climax and so um i actually started writing them consecutively so that I'd have one now and then one then chapter Mm -hmm. and alternate and then there was a point where I couldn't do that so I actually separated the two strands I used Scrivener to do this by the way which I hadn't used before it was all very new for me Um, and just and so that I I just couldn't keep track of the story when I kept switching between what had happened and you know what, what was happening so the survival story is the one that takes place in the present tense in the now chapters and the then then chapters deal with Tess's life before and and leading up to the days um, to the day that she gets in the car with uh, Nick her boyfriend Mm -hmm. and and sort of uncovers the things that drove them out there in the first place so and that's written in past tense as well so just even the shifting in tenses Mm -hmm. there was a point where I had to I just wrote one strand and then another and then Uh, You know, I didn't do it all the way through because I had to make sure each one led into, because they were alternating, they still had to make sense and they had to cross Mm. over. So the transition between each of them crossed over from the now and then narratives, I don't know if that makes sense, but it was really as complex (laughs) as it sounds. It was quite. There was definitely one point where I was sitting with this novel literally in pieces around me thinking, oh my god what have I done like I am never going to pull this together what was I thinking
4: <laughs> so when you were thinking
0: that mm-hmm. what did you do well after I, I got out of the fetal position um, <laughs> and had a very stiff coffee um, I, I basically just thought right I'm just going to stick to the strands separately I'm just going to tell that story, that part of the story in order, and then go to the, you know, and then switch to the other narrative. And in the process of um, editing at the end, that's when I would make sure they transitioned. And I just, I went back to, because I'm a pantser, not a plotter, I, I tend to write as I go. That was the point where I realized I couldn't get away with that anymore. So I just basically sketched out what each chapter was going to contain and that way they could – I was aware that they weren't – one narrative wouldn't reveal too much in the other narrative until right. it was supposed to, basically. So – and really, I, it's just persistence. That's all it was. I mean, <laughs> it, you know, it's time and persistence. That's, that's all that I changed, really.
4: Right. Well, it's paid off because it's interesting you've just said that um, uh, one timeline is written in present tense and one timeline is written in past tense. And, you know, I read books critically all the time or or, or I can't help but analyse them. And I was obviously so absorbed in this book that I did not even notice that, you know, so I (laughs) done on just making the whole thing so seamless. Um now where how in the world did the idea for this book form? Did you think oh, I'm going to write a two timeline story, or did you think I, I, I did you start off with the crash? Did you start off with the town? It's kind of set in a small town. How did it start?
0: Yeah, it definitely started with that crash. um basically, I just uh, it was one of the, it was I occasionally do these sort of Zen writing exercises where I just do a little bit of free writing and this idea of the Australian bush, the first sentences which really um Probably the uh, I think maybe the second or third chapter they ended up becoming that um, of this sense of the landscape, this description of landscape. and before I knew it, someone you know this young woman was waking up and she had some sort of brain injury or some kind of injury anyway, and she had been in a car accident. so it was literally just a bit of wild writing at the start mm-hmm. and and then and that first chapter. You know, that it was probably like the third or fourth paragraph I wrote. That ended up being the first chapter. And then once I had her waking up, it actually came became quite clear. I just all that I had at that point was she lived in a small town and she didn't want she was afraid to go home and Mm -hmm. was in this car. And even at the beginning it wasn't I didn't even know that she was gonna be in this car with anybody until actually Nick appeared a few chapters later. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was really that um, organic in that sense at the beginning. However, having said that, I had stuff I wanted to talk about. I just didn't know that this was the story that was going to do it, if that makes sense. What was the stuff that you wanted to talk about? Well, I was really interested in the idea, you know, in my first two novels, maybe not as much in The Whole of My World, but certainly in One True Thing. Home is a sanctuary. It was a, a, really a sanctuary for Frankie and even for Shelley in The Whole of My World. There is that. There are these people that make her feel safe and at home. And in the course of writing all these, you know, writing these books and meeting a lot of young people, it became really clear to me that there are a whole lot of kids who aren't safe going home. That actually they're safer out of the home, and that places that we take for granted, like school or you know the footy or whatever, whatever it is they go to, that's actually their escape because they're, you know, for whatever reason, they've got, you know, uh, neglectful parents or no parents or, you know, drug or alcohol or family violence happening in their homes. They are afraid to go home. And it was really important to me. I knew that I had to deal with this at some point because it was happening, it was coming up too often and mm-hmm. I really wanted to make sure that kids who felt like that had stories, were hearing their stories being told as well. Mm-hmm. This...
4: When I was reading this book, um, because I think I read your other book over a year ago now or, Mm. yeah, definitely over, maybe 18 months ago or something, Um, it sounds different to your other books, if that makes sense. Does that, I can't find any other way to, to Yeah. did you do that consciously or did you decide I'm going to, you know, adapt my style a bit or um
0: yeah. I, I, look, I, I'm not. I can't say it's it's conscious. It, it's not conscious at the start, but then it becomes it as once I realise that there's this thing happening and it's this style that's that I re, I'm really enjoying writing mm. and and really it was the I think it was the waking though, that that what became the first chapter, that style of this sort of disconnected, this somewhat removed voice, um, because it's told in third person, which is also new for me. My first two books were told in first person. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as I did that, I knew this was going to be different and it was just whether I wanted to sustain that or not, whether I felt I could sustain it and because Mm -hmm. it was such a a leap from what I had done before. um, And then it just became about, I was just having so much fun writing in this voice and I was having so much fun really sort of exploring language and challenging myself in um, presenting things in this different style that, um, you know, admittedly about halfway through I thought, Oh my God, again, I mean, over my head, but, <laughs> which I'm realizing happens a bit for me, but um mm-hmm. there, that was probably the point where it became a little bit more conscious, but when I'm in those chapters it, in particular, I think the um the now chapters is where the style is so different to what I'd written in the past.
3: Mm-hmm. It was
0: as a writer one of the most joyful, challenging, but joyful writing experiences I've had, just just really? in, you know yeah really just in sparse language um mm. just kind of moving through ideas and images very mm. quickly and also being able to be brief like that um a lot of those chapters you know there might be a paragraph or two long some of them
4: yeah, yeah. It, it we've said that it's set in a small town and it brings in various elements of, uh, that are you know specific to to small towns um did you grow up in a small town Not even a bit. No,
0: (laughs) I'm a Melbourne girl, born and bred. Um, You know, though, having said that, I did grow up in Glen Waverley, and now it's you know a very popular, very densely populated suburb, but um I'm not going to say how many years ago but there are decades involved let's say when (laughs) I was growing up um it really was like my friends would joke I had to travel quite a way to go to school and my friends would joke about me taking a picnic to get you know a cut lunch to make it out to my home and we're out in the sticks and that kind of a thing so and there was a sense that everybody knew everybody and you know it did feel a little bit like a small town in that way and and I think perhaps I was drawing on that but really it was simply because I thought I've had two very Melbourne stories
3: mm.
0: and I just I just wanted to you know I just thought there's more than this you know this is uh, this, if I'm going to represent Australia there's more than just one city there's more than just the city mm. and um, the landscape you know I, I felt like if she had For her to be truly isolated, she needed to be somewhere where there weren't going to be a lot of options for her and that's where the small town kind of seemed an obvious place to locate her. Everyone knows her, there's no escaping um, and there are perhaps not the services available that might be in a bigger city. So it it sort of all gelled together and I don't know which happened first but it made it, it created the right environment for Tessa to really feel kind of on her own in the way she does. Mm-mm. The, 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 there's
4: little um, descriptions, the way you describe, you know, just uh, the movement of someone's hand even or um, even some of the dialogue that's that's in here. There's so many subtle things that you include but they speak volumes and I feel that that can only happen or a writer can only do that if they're if, that writer spends a lot of time observing people. Um, Mm. Do you do that? Yeah, I do. I do. Consciously and uh, and writing things down like how they did move their hand and stuff, you know?
0: No, look, I probably don't do enough of that. I probably need to, which is I think a challenge, you know, one of the challenges I have, and I think, again, this is me pushing myself, was to more consciously um, note these sorts of things, rather than just subconsciously have them happening in my mind and hoping hoping that I can draw on them when the writing takes place, I actually made more of an effort to do that here and to even just from reading more and paying more attention as I was reading about different ways that we move, different ways that we look, different ways that people carry themselves, um, as a just because I do think you know we we aren't in each other's heads, we we rely entirely. A lot of our communication happens silently. It's what what we are doing and what people are doing or not doing when we're in each other's company. So it was really more initially just because I was sort of sick of saying the same <laughs> things and, and aware that I had these patterns in my writing that I needed to break. Ah. Um, you know, we do. We've got. Oh, I've got eyes and looking. I've got to stop that. You know, I get really caught up in expressions. I really need to to sort of think about the the physicality and that's what I wanted to do in this story is really push myself in every way including being a bit more creative in how Tessa um, would relate and understand what was happening around her and how people were behaving around her. Mm -mm.
4: Can you tell us about some of the time frames like in in, involved in the book as in um – I thought of the idea here, this at this point then it took me x number of months before I wrote the first draft and then it took me however long before I you know it, it had it edited and stuff can you just give us some key milestones so people can get an idea of
0: the gestation period um yeah I I would have started this um gee a year and a half almost two years ago uh, it was when yeah it's when one true thing had come out or was in the process of coming out, and that was 2015. Mm. Um, so, yeah, 18 months probably. And uh, it, it was really those first chapters came very quickly, um, probably the first 20,000 words. I think it was about 30,000 words I hit at that point, and that's a common point for me. Mm. Um, you know, only a few months in, they come very, very quickly, and then suddenly it's it's I, I hit a bit of a wall. And that's usually because I've run out of, outline
3: (laughs) you know I've got my I've
0: got my ending often um, or a sense of the ending and I've got my big kind of moment and I I'm very comfortable and very smooth at getting that opening that comes very naturally but the big bulky part of the story um, you know that second act and I do tend to sort of follow a rough three-act structure that's the one that bogs me down and I invariably um, hit a bit of a wall there and it's a, a point where I have to force myself to start kind of listing and outlining some key moments. Not not too deep not much detail at all, actually, but just to give myself some direction. Mm-hmm. Um and, and I did do that, but it wasn't really helping. And then we got up to NaNoWriMo that oh, year. Yes. So that would have been Yeah. And and I um I spent a day P D Martin is a crime writer. I don't know if she I don't know if you're familiar with her work. Philippa um, is an old friend of mine and she was running um, some NaNoWriMo workshop days and I spent one day, you know, she let me sort of just jump in for one day, one Sunday at the convent actually where Mm -hmm. I teach classes (laughs) with the Australian Writer Centre. And it was literally, I think it was from 10 till 5 and we wrote – With breaks every two hours, and it was you know it was just a you know bunch of people just sitting there and writing, and I knocked out thirteen thousand words, thirteen and a half in a day, in in one day. Oh my god! It will never happen again. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I broke something inside of me in the process. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, it was really i just was quite possessed and you know probably half of it i threw out but it i absolutely broke the spine of the of the story in that time and it was wow. simply by pushing through and forcing myself to just keep writing even if what i was writing was really bad yeah. um yeah and I, and in in that process it's when i kind of knew this is the thing that has to happen and this is and, you know i'm going to speak very badly this is this is the big This is the big reveal. This is the thing that's going that's going to um, ultimately test her the most, and all of the, it all just fell. and And after I knocked off those thirteen and a half thousand words, I don't think I went. I was, like I said, a little shattered after that. I don't think I really, it was quite. I mean, it was amazing while it was going. and Then I stopped, and it's it's a little bit like when you exercise you know, you you do a marathon and you feel really good for about five minutes afterwards, and then you sort of fall on the ground and think, I'm not doing that again for for a while. Um, It was a little like that. And then I think, uh, yeah, yeah, well, forever probably would have been smarter, I think. um, Maybe a month later, I because I felt like I'd done the hard bit, I just went back into it. And so probably I had to to deliver a first draft, I think it was the end of January. Mm. So the rest of the book came together in those next, what, three months, two and a half months.
4: Wow. And so you mentioned that – uh, you teach for us at the Australian Writers' Centre in Melbourne at um, the beautiful Abbotsford Convent. And I know you also sometimes work out of the Australian Writers' Centre studio a- at the convent. How important is it to you to get away from writing at home? Like why do you?
0: Uh yeah, I, I really need to. Um, I, I, f- I find even before I was able to use, you know, even when I can't always get to Abbotsford, um which is my preferred place, that's for sure. Um, Even just to walk to a local cafe, if I've only got an hour or a couple of hours, Mm. I struggle to work right at home. I mean, there are Mm. times when I have to when I'm on deadline and it's just, you know, hours straight and I've got to work overnight or I wake up Mm. very early in the morning. Um, The only time I can really write at home very effectively anymore seems to be if I wake up at 4 or 5 and before everyone's awake. You know, I have kids, Mm. I have a husband, I have a dog Mm. (laughs) who's who, uh, you know, plonks his head on my lap and makes me feel guilty that I'm not walking him. So mm. all of these things are conspiring to give me an excuse not to, to write. So I, yeah. it's, it's really just a, a discipline thing. It's too easy to get caught up in the stuff at home. Um, yeah. So I have to physically remove myself. I cannot be dragged into putting another load of washing on or yeah. starting dinner if I'm physically not in the house. And so I have to remove myself at points. Um, Fair enough. And yeah, and it's been a godsend having the having access to an office too. It's been massive.
4: Yeah, so thank you. <laughs> awesome. So you also co-host your own podcast. And it's not about writing. It's got nothing to do with writing. No. <laughs> the Outer Sanctum. Can yes. you just tell us briefly um what it's about and why you're involved in this podcast?
0: Um The Outer Sanctum is a podcast an AFL podcast that is an all-female podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I believe it was the first of its kind. So um, we only started last year, 2016, right before um, the football season, the AFL football season started, mm-hmm. and it's a bunch of – the six of us and we're all mad Hawthorne fans actually, although we try not to talk about Hawthorne too much, mm-hmm. and we, we got – I actually got to know almost all of them. It is kind of connected to books because my first novel, The Whole of My World, yeah. is um, about a teenage girl who's obsessed with footy and, you know, sort of loosely, vaguely, moderately based on my teen experiences <laughs> as a football <husband. laughs> fan. So um, Alicia sometimes – interviewed me on Triple R and we kind of became friends and then I met Emma Race and um, her sisters Lucy and um, Felicity as a result of because they, you know, they loved my book which was lovely and they reached out to me online. And Katie Sears, the um, sixth member, and she uh, is a really good friend of Emma's. So we kind of all just had this little group of Hawthorne Tragics. We um, Mm -hmm. direct message on Facebook when the footy was on and I don't know, we – they, we got involved Alicia and I got involved in um decided to collaborate on this um, collection of football stories from the outer yeah. um, and through that we in, we curated some of these conversations that the outer sank, or these they weren't called that then but these women our little direct messages um, became <laughs> were curated like into poems almost and we scattered them throughout um, from the outer and i don't know we we had a few glasses of wine over dinner to celebrate and <laughs> We, you know, someone threw out the idea, we should start a podcast. And I don't know, I think three days later we did our first episode. Oh it was
4: quite crazy. Yeah, well, it,
0: yeah. it,
4: um, it gained quite a big profile uh, over the course of last year, so you, <laughs> you've done really well with it. Um, yes, so- <laughs> <laughs> so we did. So let's just go back to the book, From the Outer. It's from mm-hmm. the out of footy, like you've never heard it. That was released last year, and you co-edited it um, with Alicia. Uh, oh, how did this idea come about, and why did you think, oh, let's do a collection of football stories?
0: Well, I've always, as I've admitted, I'm already a footy tragic. Um, mm. But honestly, again, it came from the whole of my world. I, uh, Alicia and I did kept being invited to do gigs together to talk about footy and And, you know, the the idea of women and and inclusiveness and or exclusiveness and how a lot of um, people who, like us women or people from different cultures and different backgrounds, people with disabilities, how there are still, many of us still love the game but the game hasn't always loved us back. And so many people Mm. approached us with their stories and we knew a whole bunch of writers who were kind of closet footy fans. Mm. Um, You know, there's this sort of sense that football is somehow anti-intellectual and we were really, you know, um, determined to dispel that notion, um, that it, you can't sort of be a thinking person and also love sport. So we, you know, came up with the idea of giving voice to some of these, um, stories. And so we had some awesome writers. We had Tony Birch, we had Ellen mm-hmm. Van um, uh, Maxine Bedford-Clark. We, we, Christos Chalkis. We just mm. every writer we we knew who had a complex relationship with the game for some reason or another, usually because of either their um, cultural background or their sexuality or even just their gender, um, and got them to tell us their story about how you know their relationship and whether it's about why they love the game or how it's soured for them. Um, but for the most part, it's this you know kind of homage to footy and and a, and a request for football to, to sort of step up and, and deserve us, I think, is probably mm. what we had in mind, you know, that, that there's all these people here who don't always feel included and, and need to.
4: And so when you co-edit an anthology like that, how do you brief the people? Is it literally here's X number of words and write about footy or do you coach them along
0: to to shape their story as well? Uh no,
3: we probably didn't have to do a lot of that. There were
0: only a few writers there who who were new and didn't already have a strong sense of right. what they wanted to say. Um, we definitely had word limits, but they were pretty flexible. I think we said between three and five thousand, mm-hmm. which is a pretty big you know space. Um, most mm-hmm. of them hit in around the three thousand word mark, mm-hmm. and almost all of them. Yeah, almost all of them knew what they wanted to, to write about. They were just really excited to have the opportunity to write about something people don't normally ask them to talk about. Mm. Um, you know, and we found, if anything, it was there were all these people afterwards saying, "Why didn't you ask us? We would have," yeah. you know. It was really, it was really eye opening actually to see how many people have a story to tell. Um, mm. But there, you know, there was a, there was still a lot of editing and we had to, the challenge I think was the biggest challenge in bringing all of this together is one, um, I I am a writer, you are a writer, I love writers, but we're not fantastic when it comes to being organised, so (laughs) um, hitting deadlines, you know, some are better at it than others and sending invoices, all of that sort of stuff, um, that was the really time-consuming aspect um initially that kind of really sort of dragged things down the actual editing process um of you know cleaning up the individual pieces and working with the author that was actually very smooth and um i did sort of the first round and then um joe rosenberg was our editor at black ink she did a final um, and worked with the more directly with the, each individual writer at that sort of final stage, um, the next biggest challenge was the order of stories and, mm. and making sure, yeah, because you want to hit the right tone, you want to yeah. sort of change it up a little bit, um, you don't want to sort of have a really kind of sad, there's, you know, a lot of stories, um, football stories that we ended up with had a lot to do with, you know, a father or a grandfather who'd introduced them to the game mm-hmm. and how, you know, often it was an expression of their grief or their loss yeah. or something. So getting that tone right and making sure that they didn't jar against each other, that mm-hmm. was really challenging. That's probably what, That was probably the thing that took us the longest in the end.
4: Yeah, getting the right pacing and the right, yeah, experience for the reader, I suppose.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
4: So being a footy tragic, um, Mm. I understand that you have another book coming out uh, about football as well?
0: Yeah. Um, Alicia and I have have, um, collaborated again with Black Ink on a kid's book, actually. This time I don't usually write for the younger. This is a primary school, 7 to 12-year-old children. I'm going to say predominantly girls and it's called A Footy Girl's Guide to the Stars of 2017. And it's just a collection of um, the personal stories of eight players from the women's competition, the, the brand-new AFL women's competition that starts on February 3rd is the first game, and the book comes out that day too. So it's um, – or I think it comes out just before that. And basically we just did – we interviewed the um, one player from each club and, uh, you know, asked them a little bit about – their experiences of football as while they are growing up, how they came to the game, what the um, competition means to them, you know, what their routine is, that sort of thing, as well as some fun stuff, you know, what their favourite food is and, you know, what what um, what's the worst thing about being a footballer, all sorts of questions that hopefully um, will appeal to kids and yeah. just as a way of kind of... You know, these women are amazing what they've had to accomplish well beyond what's on the field. They've got, you know, careers they've had to put on hold. They've got um, partners that they've left in another state or family. Mm. This is it, – it's an enormous thing that's being asked of them and it's – it's and yet they feel it's such a privilege. So we really want to give mm. them an opportunity to, to just to kind of celebrate them and, and the incredible achievement of finally, finally mm. um, having a women's competition, which is, you know, very – Related. Wow, you're really into AFL, aren't you?
4: (laughs) Okay, right. Okay, enough (laughs) AFL. We're going to go back to the (laughs) shadow's breath. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting because I was just thinking when you when we were talking about uh, you know people having stories about the football that first thing I thought of was I am so not a football. Tragic, yeah. not even close. Like I'm like the opposite to you, um, but then I thought, oh my god, the last short story I wrote was set in the AFL. How, How weird's that? That is really weird. <laughs> so, so, weird. Oh, so funny, <laughs> very strange. But anyway, back to a shadow's breath. What um was
0: the
4: what was the most challenging thing about this book that was probably different to your other books? Uh, the novels
0: um, I think unlike every other book or you know that I've written or a story, I mean even from the out, I wrote a story of my childhood um, and I've written manuscripts that haven't been published as well. Mm. This is the first one where I really wasn't drawing much at all on my own story or 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 drawing on something that is a you know that was has always been a lifelong interest for me so for example in the whole of my world it's footy and she's obsessed with football Mm -hmm. um and and it's in first person so I sort of was able to sort of inhabit Shelley in that way and really much of her experience was just conjuring or remembering what I experienced and or other people around me and I was able to sort of filter that through within the construction, the story construction, but also um, draw on very authentic experiences that I could relate to. Mm -hmm. Um, In One True Thing, my two other loves apart from footy and and books (laughs) and writing are politics Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, music. And I really – I have no musical talent whatsoever, but I am a huge fan of Pearl Jam in particular Mm -hmm. and – You know, I got to really – even though Frankie is a very different personality to to me, I was able to sort of express my love for these two things in the context of this story. So I really didn't have to do a lot of research, for example. I was able to just draw on stuff I already know. Um, You know, I majored in politics as an undergraduate. It's been a very – even as a teenager, I was quite political and it's always mattered to me. So I didn't have to do – too much in the way of um, research or really have to familiarize myself too much with something I wasn't familiar with except that Frankie played guitar, was learning guitar Mm -hmm. and even then a lot of my research was the fact that my daughter was you know studying guitar and was around the same age and I could you know it was all right there around me I could just draw on what was happening around me. Mm -hmm. Um, In a shadow's breath it's a really foreign experience to me. I I did not have. I had a very safe, very loving family life. Mm. I, you know, I yes, I lived in Glen Waverley, and yes, we. I felt a bit cut off sometimes, and perhaps that's the the thing that I related to most when I was painting. Um, you know, drawing a picture of of Tessa. Mm. Um, but everything else, I really had to. Well, and, and probably the grief and, and this aspects of um, mental health that, that I was able to also draw on from my own you know, experiences of people around me. But the, the landscape, the, um, this home life that she had, all that was something I had to be very careful to get right and to make sure it felt authentic because you know, I was reaching well out of my experience and my comfort zone. So I would say, um, I mean, and Tessa paints. That she, her main sort of expression of her, you know, her what way out, I suppose, emotionally, was always her create her creativity, and it was visual arts. It's painting and drawing, and and I am, you know, truly lacking any skill whatsoever <laughs> in the art, in the visual arts. Like I, I am not a visual person. I actually have um I remember reading I love beautifully put together children's books I really do but I also realized that when I'm reading when I used to read them to my kids I would not look at the pictures like I just didn't even notice them I I, not when I'm telling not as part of the story I would look at them as a visual thing separately but when I was reading the story I looked at the words and I often (laughs) would get to the end of a book and think that doesn't make any sense that doesn't end and my kids would point out to me because the, the answer or the, you know, the, the reveal or whatever, the information yeah. was in the picture that I completely missed. Yeah. So it really having to create, to put myself in the space of this, of Tessa who loves painting and drawing and, and you know, is that is her, the thing that she um, escapes to, having to also be able to technically describe it, it was really yeah. challenging. It was really challenging for me. Yeah, So I it. Yeah.
4: It was. Um, you um, teach creative writing at the Australian Writers Centre. What do you enjoy about teaching creative writing?
0: Oh, there's a there's a couple of things that stand out for me. Um, one is I really love the people. I, you know, I don't know if you would screen or what, but we just always <laughs> have great people. I don't know how it works, but we've always had fabulous people. Like really engaged. They really want to be there. They bounce off each other. They feed off each other. The energy is always really great. So. It just, you know, as a hu- as a human who likes other humans, it's a mm. g- lovely space to be in. Um, so that's separate from the content itself. But I think probably um, the other thing I really love is that it actually reminds me, it uh, forces me to think about um, my own writing practice more consciously. Mm. It reminds me, um, you know, of tricks and, you know, devices, strategies, things that, I might have forgotten it forces me to remind myself of these this is a way that you can write through a problem or this is a way that you know this is a great way of building a character when you're not sure if you know them and and here's a he's a really good plot device you can try when you know you feel like you've run out of choices that kind of a thing. You to make, you know, it's like when you're teaching somebody to drive, and you sort of remember all these bad habits you've developed. It's, <laughs> I, I really find um, it, it's very useful in making me a better writer. Mm. Um, and that was really unexpected. I don't, I don't know that I realised that would happen in the process.
4: And finally, what's your advice to aspiring writers who want to be like, you know, who want to have their book,
0: their third book novel out one day or even their first? Yeah, right. Well, it's a tough gig, that's for sure. Um, And I wouldn't recommend. don't get in in it for the money. That will be my first advice. Um, But honestly, it's, I think the most important things you can do are, are to read widely and to try to write. Even a little bit as often as you can i I'd say every day, but I certainly aren't able to do that all of the time but even if you can put to get put down you know fifteen twenty minutes set aside to to just have a bit of a scribble, it can actually just get you in the habit of um just thinking on the page rather than keeping it all in your head but the one piece of advice that I always um give students when at the beginning of every class is not so much to write what you know because. Well, you know, often what we know is our day job and probably the thing we don't love most in the world. Um, you know, but what, write something that you love or that matters deeply
3: mm.
0: and matters deeply to you because it's a long process if you're going to try to write a book. And so you need to have something you connect with in a really powerful way to push to push through those, um, those tough, lonely days. Um, but also because at the end of it, that's where your authenticity comes through. I think that's where the best writing comes through.
4: Mm. On that note, thank you so much for your time today, Nicole.
0: Thanks for having me, Val.
4: There you go, Nicole
1: Hayes. Well, oh, it's a really interesting interview and I particularly found a bit about the timelines quite interesting because mm. it is difficult to manage different mm. timelines oh. within the one manuscript.
2: Yes. I think so. Mm. And I think that when I have read ones where there are con- concurrent timelines, I've always thought, you know, how do you do this? Mm. <laughs> it's, um, it's it's uh, it, it's something that I think different people manage um, differently. Some people yeah. write the whole thing in one go and some people do it at the same time concurrently, mm. which I personally would find quite confusing. But anyway. Mm. But yes, so that's Nicole Hayes, A Shadow's Breath. So we have a working writer's tip this week, do we, Al?
1: Oh, we do have one. Um, it's quite an interesting one. We, uh, it comes from a, a, a recently this week I put up a post on my blog which is called How to Edit Your Own Writing, um, mm. Five Top Tips from a Writer. Um, and it was followed up by a companion post called How to Manage Your Writing, Five Top Tips from an Editor, in which the rather fabulous Nicola O'Shea, who we ah. have actually interviewed on the podcast, um, gave her top five tips for people who are uh, – it was all about the first draft. Like, you've got your first draft done. How do you then you know, edit it yourself, which is what you need to do with your first draft? You need to go through it and do that first edit yourself. So um, I'll put the link in the show notes to those two Uh, post, um, which you'll find um, on my blog at alicentate.com. But um, this particular question comes from Marie and Mm -hmm. this was her, this is the question. Um, Regarding your recent post on editing, with a major structural edit, whether it's one you've taken on yourself, for example, after the first draft or one a publisher has asked for, do you tend to actually retype the sections slash chapters, which I'm assuming you're working on, or Do you do more of a cut and paste and change a few words here and there? I'm asking because I'm doing my own structural edit at the moment and find that I'm retyping huge chunks, which can be time-consuming, but the word flow seems to be better. Any advice or suggestions to make the process easier? I use Scrivener. Also, has your structural edit process changed as you've written more books? Thanks, Mm. Marie. Well, thanks very much for the question, Marie. Um, I think uh, we've talked a little bit about structural edits in the past, and I think it's worth noting that the first time you take on a structural edit of any large body of text, it can be a very, very overwhelming process. Now, with regards to the, you know, do I retype sections, chapters, or do I do more of a cut and paste and change a few words here and there, I think it depends very much on the size of the section that you're working on. Um, If you're moving a scene, for example, from one section of the book to another, you may find that the easiest way to do that is to cut-paste the entire scene, but then you will find that you'll need to rewrite sections of that scene to make it fit the new section of your text anyway Um, but I have to confess that I don't retype sections or chapters generally speaking. I'm not retyping words I've already typed. Um, Mm. I am actually just working within um, a copy. So what I do is I I, I write the first draft and then I save that document as the first draft and then I work, I I, I copy the entire document, Mm. save it as, you know, dot one or dot a or however it is that you manage your documents and then i work on that so that i can because version control can be very very difficult with a manuscript like trying to keep track of which version it is you're working on i have friends who only ever use one document the first draft yeah i'm serious the first draft becomes the second draft becomes the third draft becomes the fourth draft whatever and it's just because they they find the version control can be very very difficult and as they say you know these particular authors will say to me I don't need those words that I've got rid of now I don't think like that I oh tend my to think, God. what if I need it later so it's sort of you know people I'm different horrified. people well it's just you know. Different people work in different ways. And this is what I would say to Marie is that if you're finding that retyping – because you say the word flow is better if you're retyping huge chunks, Mm. um, then go with that. It might be more time consuming, but the chances are you're actually getting a better edit done with with doing that if that's what's working for you. Um, I can't comment on – Scrivener, because as we've discussed, I don't use it. Um, so I, as far as advice or suggestions to make the process easier, you know, I I don't have any for with regards to Scrivener. Um, as I said, I tend to copy the whole document, work in a whole new document, and then I can remove bits or add bits or whatever, safe in the knowledge that I'm not losing anything. I, I don't have to then, you know, try to remember what I wrote. Yeah. Um, so I. I, I you know, that's probably the only advice that I can really give as far as that's concerned. If you're finding that what you're doing works, even though it's time-consuming, then go with that because Ooh. getting the best word flow is what, you, what you're what you essentially – that's what you're after. That's what you're trying to achieve. Um, have you got any thoughts on, on using Scrivener to actually – Make that process easier mm,
2: yeah, I do well, firstly, I want to echo what you said that if you find what Alison just said is that if you do find that your word flow is going to be is better when you are retyping because obviously you must be changing some words here and there, mm. then to me, that's a no brainer if it's better, you do the better version, but uh, in terms of scrivener, yeah, I do because I do use scrivener on um manuscripts. I don't use it for if I write an article for a magazine. Mm. Uh, in terms of a structural edit, I find that it can be really useful. So the reason for that, and, and it can be useful, you see, it depends on um, how much work needs to be done. If you get feedback on your structural edit and you re- and essentially there's definitely changes that need to be made, but they're not major structural changes, um, then, you know, you can do that, whether that's a word or Scrivener or whatever. But when you do have some significant structural changes, what's useful about Scrivener, and certainly I used it when I wrote my manuscript, is that you can you can view your manuscript in a variety of different ways. So for example, for every key chapter and or scene or, you know, section, you know, because some people write non-fiction, you can create kind of like a little index card which summarizes what's in that section. So you you know exactly what's
3: mm. what happens
2: in that section. And so, what can be useful is that you can put all those index cards on your screen, and then you can move them around, and then you can read the flow. Okay. And I find that if you do need to that kind of jigsaw-ish uh, approach, then uh, then and and you're likely only to need that jigsaw-ish approach if you've got if you need to change quite a lot of things around. you know what I mean?
3: Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. only
2: got to move, you know, chapter three to chapter ten, then that's far more straightforward
3: mm.
2: but um, so yes I, I think that uh, Scrivener can be useful when you use the index cards or the summaries or, or whatever um, so that you can just visually see and then read the summaries without having to read the whole entire yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. fair enough yes
2: yeah. so I am um, yeah I think that uh, Alison is right also in that everyone is different so you need to work out the way that works best for you and the only way you can find out the way that works best for you is to try different ways and then you can just say okay well that was way more efficient or oh my god I hated that I'd rather die or whatever you know what I mean
1: yeah and as far as the last part of the question Marie as to whether my structural edit process has changed as I've written more books I think that it definitely has only from the perspective that it's become streamlined, like I just have a much better idea of what's involved now because i've mean, i mean I've now structurally edited eight or nine novels, you know six mm. children's manuscripts plus three. Um, adult novels that I've written. Um, so you just get a much more of a of an idea of exactly what's involved in the process and how to approach the character development and how to approach, you know, this is not working. What do you need to do? It, it becomes streamlined. It's like, it's like learning to swim. You know, the first time you, you look at the pool and you fall in and you just go, oh, this is horrible, and you flail around and you feel like you're drowning. But obviously the more that you do it, the easier to stay afloat it is. So I, I, yeah. I guess that's that's kind of the best analogy I can give because it really does feel like you're wading through words, like you're kind of mm. you know throwing them around and nothing much is happening and you're moving one heat to another. But you just become more practiced at, at and your process has become streamlined and I, I'd say that's probably been the biggest difference in yeah. my structural edit process. I just have more of an idea of what to do now because Fantastic. I've done
2: Yeah, absolutely. All right, so thank you so much for your question, Marie. Um, Now, I just want to give a shout out and some love and some resources to some of the people who are listening who don't write fiction because Mm, we do talk a lot about fiction. We do. Uh, But we have a brand new course which is for people who want to write non-fiction. And specifically, it's about writing about your area of expertise. So the course is called Build Your Book, Grow Your Business by Showcasing Your Knowledge. And that's at the Australian Writer Centre. And it's an online course, so you can mm-hmm. do this no matter where you are. So this is usually appropriate for people who are business owners or entrepreneurs or speakers or um, people who just want to showcase their knowledge. So you might be a chiropractor, you want to write about back pain, you might be a divorce coach, you might want to write about coping with divorce, you might be a wellness person, wants to write about wellness but you want to write it in a non-fiction book. So it's a little bit different to what we usually talk about, but if you're interested in that, then check it out because there is a special pre-launch offer that mm. will be announced soon. So just go to writercentre.com.au slash build your book. That's writercentre.com.au slash build your book. Now,
1: until we chat again, Al, what are you doing? What are you up to? Oh, this is, like, I'm very much focused on my copy edit for the first book in my new series and I cannot wait until I have a cover I can actually share the title of this thing with you so I can stop calling it the first book in my new series (laughs) um, which should hopefully be any minute now Um, that will be exciting Uh, so yeah that's that's where I'm focused at the moment is getting that um, getting that done and dusted and uh, the other thing I'm also doing in the background is creating some promo stuff for um, the fourth book in the Mapmaker Chronicle series, which oh. is called Beyond the Edge of the Map. So I'm putting together a bit of a plan for that, um, sending out a few emails, you know, getting a bit of a strategy going. So that's, uh, that's happening in the background. That's what I'm doing when I need to belt my head against a wall because the copy edit's <laughs> doing my head in. Yeah.
2: Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, anyway. Um, anyway. Well, I am busy actually putting the finishing touches on the course that I just mentioned, Build Your Book grow um, your business by showcasing your knowledge. And one of the things that I found really inspiring because it also includes six case studies of people who have done just that. They've, you know, grown their business Mm -hmm. by showcasing their knowledge. And one of the guys that I was just speaking to and he's featured in the course is that he talks about um, his book and how he uses his book basically as a uh, marketing tool for, uh, for his own business which is, of all things, coaching dentists in how to run their business. But here's the kicker. Here's the kicker, Al. Seriously, I I I almost fell off my chair when I heard this. His book has resulted in, he said, if it wasn't for the book, he would not have multiple six-figure revenues that he can attribute to the book. Oh multiple six-figure revenues, not necessarily from the sales of the book, but whoever he sold the book to, they've then engaged him for his oh, expertise. Interesting. So I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. Anyway, anyway. Uh, so it's, uh, it's been fascinating just listening to these stories, and I'm so excited to bring the course to everyone. So where do we find you online out?
1: You'll find me at alisontait.com, a You'll find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val?
2: Uh, You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And feel free to connect with me on Facebook as well. I'm Valerie Koo, who lives in Sydney. And uh, do reach out to us on social media. We'd love to hear from you and love to hear what you think about the podcast. And until next time, thank you so much for listening. Bye.
4: Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.